Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. We're continuing our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, we're a few uh, sermons into that. We're in the second half of chapter two. And I want to give you two uh, background, two, two pieces of context to understand what we're about to read, to make more sense of it. Here's the first thing that you should know, uh, the first context you should have, that there was a city called Antioch. And in that city, which was a big city, it was one of the places where after the, the Christians um, in Jerusalem were scattered after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, they went to Antioch and they started a church there. In fact, it was there in Antioch that the believers in Jesus were first called Christians. And Antioch was a place where there were both Jews and Gentiles. So you had this new church that had a mixture of, of Jews and Gentiles Together, and the church was growing so much there that uh, the apostles sent Barnabas to go check it out. And Barnabas, as a result, went and got Paul and brought Paul to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas ministered in the city of Antioch there, helping the church um, to continue to grow. That's the first thing. The second thing to know, we read this passage, is to remember that one of the apostles named Peter. Uh, early in uh, the book of Acts, has a vision of a sheet being uh, let down from heaven. And in this sheet, in his vision, were a bunch of animals, and particularly uh, to Jewish people, unclean animals, animals that you wouldn't eat uh, or associate with. And uh, so um, Peter uh, receives this vision and is told to uh, eat these animals, to kill and eat these animals And Peter, as a good Jewish man, says, no way, Lord. Um, But God repeats the vision, uh, and he does so in the context of a visit to a man's house named Cornelius because God is trying to teach Peter that he is not to despise anyone who is a follower of Jesus, no matter what their background, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, that the gospel is for all people, and the gospel is for the Gentiles as well. Okay, so those are the two pieces of background that you want to keep in mind. As we read Galatians 2, you're going to hear um, those people mentioned, and you're going to remember that, and it will help make sense of what we're reading. Okay, so if you're willing and able, would you stand? And I'll read for us from Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. This is the word of God that he wants you to hear today. But when Cephas, that is Peter... But when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, 
how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God, would you um, help me to preach this message to myself this morning? Holy Spirit, would you um, open our hearts and our ears, open our minds to receive your word, to um, to believe it deeply, that it might change us, that it might draw us um, to worship you and for your grace and your love. We ask it, Jesus, in your name, amen. You may be seated, please. So it was the Apostle Paul that had started uh, the churches in Galatia. There were multiple churches that he wrote this letter to, right? And these churches that um, he started, this, uh, this letter he wrote, it was the first letter he wrote in the New Testament. And he has in this letter, we've been looking at um, these last two chapters, this kind of autobiographical section, right? Paul is telling his story to the believers in Galatia, uh, and um, he's, he's doing it for a purpose. And we tell stories, right? We love to hear stories of beginnings, things like, how did you meet, right? How did you get engaged? How did you get married? We love to hear stories about how someone started a business and uh, worked hard and and, and made it successful. We love to hear stories in order to get to know people. Paul has a purpose for his storytelling, a purpose for telling the Galatians about what happened to him. And uh, his purpose is this, that false teachers had come into these churches in Galatia that he had started, and they were running a smear campaign against Paul and against his gospel. They were saying that these Gentile Christians in Galatia had to add following Jewish laws to following Jesus. That their message was Jesus plus, like Hulu plus or ESPN plus, right? Why would you want the original when you can have the plus, right? Jesus plus. Jesus alone, they said, isn't sufficient for salvation. You need Jesus plus. And Paul saw to the heart of the matter. He saw that the issue at hand was not just um, laws about what food you couldn't eat or the Sabbath or circumcision. He saw that the gospel was at stake, that salvation itself hung in the balance for these churches. So to illustrate his point, Paul tells the Galatians what happened to him one time when he was in Antioch with Peter. Remember, Paul knew Peter. 
Right? Paul had gone to Jerusalem and um, spent 15 days with Peter and gotten to know him better after his um, conversion. Years later, Paul came to Jerusalem again, and Peter and James and John gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. Peter was seen as the apostle to the Jews. Paul was seen as the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, the book of Acts, which documents the history of the early church, is basically split into two halves. The first half is centered around Peter, and the second half is centered around Paul. So you have Peter, the rock on whom Christ said he would build his church. You have Paul, the author of half of the New Testament. You know, Shaq and Kobe, Sonny and Cher, Frodo and Samwise, Mario and Luigi, Paul and Peter. That's why it's so shocking when um, Paul writes at the beginning of this passage, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Publicly, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. John Stott said that this is without a doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. What would cause this face-off between the two leading apostles of the church? Why would Paul put Peter on blast? And the answer is one word, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Paul had to deal with hypocrisy head on. Not only Peter's hypocrisy, but the hypocrisy with the Galatians. He couldn't ignore it. He couldn't let it grow. Just like in the homes that were flooded from Idalia, uh, you can't just leave the carpet in there. right? You can't leave the drywall. You have to rip it all out. You have to deal with it head on. Uh, and so we must deal with hypocrisy. Take your sermon outline. It's on the inside cover of your bulletin. And let's think about hypocrisy together. The first thing to note is the reality of hypocrisy. The reality of hypocrisy. Look again, starting at verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what was going on in Antioch? Um, What happened there? Peter was living out what he had learned from the Cornelius episode. God had taught him that he was not to see anyone as unclean, right? That, that he was free to um, fellowship with anyone who belonged to Jesus, even if they were different from him, even if they did not follow the Jewish cleanliness laws. So what was Peter doing? Peter was barbecuing baby back ribs and eating shrimp cocktails with Gentile Christians in Galatia, right? He was fellowshipping uh, with them uh, in Antioch. Uh, In biblical times, eating with someone held a greater significance than it does today. Sharing a meal signified close relationship and acceptance. If you were to 
to, to eat with someone, right? It was personal. Not only that, but where did the early church meet for worship? They didn't meet in sanctuaries. They met in people's homes. Right? And so, so here you have right, people breaking bread together, eating together, but not just breaking bread, but breaking the bread, taking communion together in each other's homes. So Peter was fully integrated with his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. He was doing life and faith with them until a far right-wing extremist group came known as the Circumcision Party. I don't know why it's called the Circumcision Party. Circumcision doesn't sound like a party to me. Um, But this group came and it says that Peter, fearing them, drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles. Think about, think about how hurtful and confusing uh, and damaging this would have been for, for, for Peter to do this, for, for him to, to, to say to these other believers, there's something you lack, there's something that disqualifies you. We cannot fellowship together. We cannot sit at the same table together. And verse 13 says, the rest of the Jews, that is the Jewish Christians like Peter, they acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You can hear Paul's sadness over this, right? Even Barnabas. The Greek word translated hypocrisy came from the world of the theater. It, it, uh, it was used uh, to describe someone who wore a mask, right? Someone who was play acting, someone who was acting a part someone that you're not, behaving differently from your true professed beliefs. You know, it's not like Peter just all of a sudden forgot about the whole vision and the animals and what Jesus had told him. It's it's not that Peter made like an honest mistake. Uh, No, Peter capitulated. He caved. Peter compromised his convictions. And why? Why did he do it? Well, it says he he acted hypocritically because he feared the circumcision party. The text doesn't tell us what exactly he feared. Did he fear being rejected? Did he fear um, for his safety? Did he fear losing his reputation? Whatever it was, fear caused him to respond in a manner inconsistent with his beliefs. And this wasn't the first time that Peter had acted inconsistent with his beliefs, right? If you remember um, one time when Jesus was walking on the water uh, with his uh, uh, disciples in the boat, and Peter gets out of the boat to um, come to Jesus, and he's walking on the water, and then he sees the waves and the wind, and he's afraid, and he begins to sink Right? You can think of Peter at the end of Jesus' life when Jesus was arrested and uh, Peter says, I will never deny you. And yet, out of fear of others, he denies Christ three times. Paul explains this, this hypocrisy in another way. In verse 14, he says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. A literal translation is they were not walking straight with the truth of the gospel. You know that if um, someone gets pulled over for drunk driving, right, one of the tests that the officer uh, will give to determine if the person is intoxicated is they will ask them to walk 
a straight line, which they cannot do, right? Uh, Paul says that they were not walking the straight line, the truth of the gospel. So what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is talking the talk but not walking the walk. Hypocrisy is compromising your convictions. It is when your conduct does not match up to the gospel truth that you profess. And here's the thing that is, I think, most noteworthy out of this passage is who is guilty of hypocrisy in these verses? Who is guilty of hypocrisy? Peter, an apostle, one of the two main apostles. He is the one who is guilty of hypocrisy. And, and two, Paul was also guilty of hypocrisy at times because we read in his letter to the Romans, he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So think about this. The apostles were hypocrites. Does that make you uncomfortable? The apostles were hypocrites. The apostles compromised their convictions. The apostles at times did not walk in step with the truth of the gospel. If that was true of apostles, can we say that it might also be true of you and me? See, the reality of hypocrisy is that we are all guilty of it. We drink in the ways of the world, and like intoxicated men and women, we do not walk straight in line with the gospel. We are like cars that need continual realignment because every time we hit a bump, we start to drift. And like Peter, our hypocrisy is often motivated by fear, is it not? Fear of the unknown or fear of man, fear of losing something or someone. Out of fear, we compromise our convictions. We, we put on a mask. We act differently. Uh, we act like a different person. I think for most of you coming in here this morning, I don't have to work very hard to try to convince you of your hypocrisy because you felt it this week. You felt it when you um, argued with your spouse and fought with your spouse. You felt it when you lost it on your kids. You felt it when you looked down on that person who was different from you. You felt it when you gave in to that temptation again. Sometimes uh, we call it um, forgetting the gospel, right? I forgot the gospel, and that's fine, but really I don't think that's quite strong enough. For me, most of the time, it's not that I forget the gospel like I forget where I've parked my car. It's that I, I knowingly choose to suspend belief in the gospel so that I can do what I know shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing. Jerome's, uh, Jerome was an early church father, and um, it's interesting, his interpretation of these verses, he just refused to believe that Peter actually did this. He said that he thought that Peter actually pretended to uh, pull away from uh, the Gentiles in order to, to give Paul a chance to teach a lesson, because he just could not believe that an apostle of Jesus Christ could act hypocritically, that an apostle could err. Well, if I was being honest, then every time I walked into this building, I would say, hi, my name is Brandon. I'm a pastor, and I'm a hypocrite. 
We're all guilty of hypocrisy. You and I have a problem. What do we do when confronted with the reality of our hypocrisy? Maybe like Paul called out Peter, the Holy Spirit is calling you out this morning, that your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. What do you do? So second, what is the remedy for hypocrisy? What is the remedy for our hypocrisy? Um, The remedy is one word that, believe it or not, Paul has not yet used in his letter to the Galatians. All the way up to this point, he's not used this word. He's gonna use it for the very first time here, um, and it's the word justification. The remedy to hypocrisy is justification. Justification just simply means making things right. Um, Justification is the remedy, but there is, Paul says, a false justification, and there's a true justification. There is a, a placebo, and there is an actual cure. Look again, um, starting at verse 15. See if you can identify both the, the placebo and the cure, according to Paul. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Did you catch it? It's pretty easy to catch because three times in one sentence, Paul basically says the same thing. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? In order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So let's, let's consider first the placebo. Right? Um, kids, do you know what a placebo is? Right? Uh, a placebo is a fake medicine that they use in research trials. Right? It's, um, it's used so that there's a control to help eliminate bias. For example, a placebo pill, instead of including the drug, would just be made out of sugar. Uh, a placebo looks like medicine, but it can't help you. Paul says, don't take the placebo. It won't heal you. In fact, it will actually make you worse. The placebo that won't fix our hypocrisy is trying to be justified by works of the law. Trying to be justified by works of the law. What does Paul mean by this phrase, works of the law? Uh, I like how Eugene Peterson put it. He said this, by works of the law, Paul means the acts that we perform in order to get God's approval. He means religious or moral activity that is designed to save our own skin. It is good behavior or religious behavior that is performed because someone else is looking or God is looking. It is life by performance, by show, by achievement. And of course, it imprisons us because someone is always looking. We never have the pleasure of doing something just for the pleasure that it brings to someone or for the sense of rightness it has in our lives. We must always be calculating what someone else will think of what we do whether it will fit into what others expect, how God might reward us, what penalties we will avoid. Justification by works of the law is another way of saying justification by good works, right? Trying to earn God's favor through our good works. And Paul says this is a placebo. Verses uh, 17 and 18 are uh, some of the most difficult verses to translate in 
the letter to the Galatians, but, but the meaning in the context is clear enough. Paul basically, in these verses, repeats one of the arguments of his opponents where they say, Paul, your plan of justification, to be justified by faith in Christ, it isn't working because you're still a sinner, right? You still sin. Uh, you need something else. The only way, they said, to fix hypocrisy is through following the law, to which Paul says, Adding the law to Jesus is like trying to rebuild a house that you've already torn down. It doesn't work, right? Hypocrisy can't be solved with keeping the law because no one can keep the law. I, I uh, heard an illustration that was helpful in, a, in our, um, one of our uh, family um, uh, devotion uh, books that we have. Uh, it describes how uh, the law, right? We often think of when we hear the law, and that, that and the New T- Paul uses that in the New Testament. He's usually speaking of uh, the Ten Commandments, right? The Mosaic laws. That we tend to think of um, uh, breaking the law as there are like lots of dishes, right? Lots of different plates. And, and, and you think of someone spinning lots of plates. And so you think of like the Ten Commandments, and you know, oh, I broke one of them, so I lost one of the 10, but I still got nine, right, that I'm spinning around. But instead, what the New Testament teaches is that the law is not a bunch of plates, the law is one plate. And if you break one law, you've broken the whole plate. Paul says justification by works of the law is a placebo. It doesn't work because no one can keep the law. A uh, synonym for works of the law is religion. Religion can't fix hypocrisy. Religion only makes hypocrisy worse. Religion says you atone for your own sin by hiding it under layers of good works. If you find in religion that you've compromised your convictions, the problem is you weren't trying hard enough. So add some rules. Add some things that you can do better. Be better. And the truth is you might look better for a time on the outside But Jesus reserved his harshest words for hypocrites who didn't see their hypocrisy and who refused to acknowledge it. He called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked beautiful, but on the inside, they were full of dead, rotting corpses. Um, When presented with the problem of your hypocrisy, when faced with the fact that you have compromised your convictions and not walked in step with the gospel, you have one of two options. You can take the placebo or you can take the cure. Matrix, right? The red pill or the blue pill, right? You take the placebo or you can take um, the cure. So what about the cure? The cure is radically different from the placebo. The cure says you must acknowledge your hypocrisy and seek to be justified by faith in Christ. The placebo says downplay your hypocrisy, downplay your sinfulness, and seek to be justified by good works. The cure says acknowledge your hypocrisy, acknowledge your sinfulness, and seek your justification outside of yourself, right, in Christ. We are justified. We are made right with God through faith in Jesus by believing that he did all of the works of the law perfectly for us. Faith accepts what Christ has accomplished. Faith rests in the merit of Christ, not in our own merit. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Our hypocrisy deserves condemnation. Even our best works deserve condemnation. But when we believe in Christ, we receive 
justification. We are pardoned. We are acquitted. We are declared righteous, not because we are righteous, but because Christ was righteous for us. Paul says whether we're Jewish or whether we're Gentile, right? whether we're religious or irreligious, we, all, uh, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. He says that's why we have believed in Christ Jesus. The, the Greek participle for in can also be translated into. That's why we have believed into Christ Jesus. The only way to be justified because we are all hypocrites. The only way to be made right in our relationship with a perfectly holy God is to acknowledge our sin and helplessness and run into Jesus. Run into him for refuge and mercy. In Luke chapter five, uh, we we read about how the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled against the disciples and against Jesus saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them saying, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So what do you do when faced with the reality of your your hypocrisy? You don't take the placebo of justification by good works. You take the cure of justification by faith in Christ. Uh, Martin Luther was um, once um, writing to a uh, friend, 31 year old, a follower of Jesus who was struggling with spiritual despair. And Luther said to his friend, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Donald Gray Barnhouse is a preacher. He was uh, preaching one time in in some church somewhere, and uh, as he was getting ready to come up and preach, a, uh, a woman got up and began to sing an old gospel hymn. And the hymn uh, is called, Is He Satisfied With Me? And the hymn goes, I am satisfied with Jesus, but a question comes to me as I ponder o'er his goodness. Is he satisfied with me? Am I kind in word and tender? Am I all I ought to be? Am I always his defender? Is he satisfied with me? Do I tell the blessed story of the Christ on Calvary, doing all for his glory? Is he satisfied with me? Is my master satisfied? Is he satisfied with me? I am satisfied with Jesus. Is he satisfied with me? And the song ends. And Barnhouse stepped into the pulpit and shouted, yes, he is. God is satisfied with you because of Jesus. If you have been justified, if you have taken the cure, not sought to be justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have his favor. Martin Luther wrote, he said, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know justification by faith well, teach it to others, 
and beat it into their heads continually. I love Martin Luther. Um, Hypocrisy is a reality for all of us, and the remedy that Paul fights for in this passage is justification, not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So last then, with regard to hypocrisy, how do we experience renewal? Right? If, you, if you recognize the reality of your hypocrisy, if you acknowledge it, and if you run to Jesus for refuge and mercy, you've been justified by him, made right with God, and now... Um, you're declared righteous, acquitted, pardoned. How do you actually begin to see renewal in your life? How, how do you actually um, see improvement with regard to hypocrisy? Where does the daily power come from to change? Not to be perfect, but to, to not put on the mask so often. To not compromise your convictions so easily. To, to not capitulate so readily out of fear. Look, look again at what Paul says, starting at verse 19. He says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul is saying that for those who have been justified, those who belong uh, to Christ, who believed in Jesus, a death and a rebirth has occurred. A death and a rebirth. Um, Paul says it in two ways. I've died to the law so that I might live to God. Right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says it this way. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You see, the Holy Spirit now dwells within us, sanctifying us, renewing us, enabling us to live authentic to who we now are. And, the, and Paul says, this life that I now live, this life, he says, in the flesh, which is another way of saying, I'm not perfect. I still live in the flesh. It's still in the world, but I'm new. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and I do not nullify the grace of God. It is the love and grace of Jesus that is our source of daily renewal. It is the power for our renewal because there is not an ounce of hypocrisy in Jesus. We did not love him first. He is not living by faith in us. He loved us first. We live by faith in him. And do you hear how personal Paul gets here? Right, The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jonathan Edwards once counseled a young believer, said to this young believer, one new discovery of the glory of Christ's face and the fountain of his sweet grace and love one discovery will do more towards scattering the clouds of darkness and doubting in one minute than examining old experiences for a whole year. The renewal, the daily renewal, one new discovery just for one minute is how God renews us in Christ's love and grace. Can you hear the voice of Jesus this morning saying to you afresh, I love you? I gave my life for 
you. John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was also the one who wrote that there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Soaking in the perfect love of Jesus for you is the way that we experience renewal for our hypocrisy. The felt love of Jesus can replace the fear that causes us to compromise our convictions. Paul said, I do not nullify the grace of God. I am still amazed by grace. I cannot believe that I, of all people, have received unmerited favor from God. Look at the quote from Eugene Peterson. It's in your bulletin. It's on the screen. Grace means gift. Each morning we wake to a world and walk out of our houses to an existence that is given by God. God shares who he is and what he makes, his love and his salvation. Where all is gift, I do not own things or persons and thus don't have to protect them. Therefore, I don't have to be anxious. In a world of grace, I do not live in laborious struggle, trying to fashion a world that suits my needs and desires, hammering together a life out of the bits and pieces of scrap lumber that come my way. I do not live in anxious suspicion, nervous about what others might do to me, what others might think of me. I simply discover and receive. There is a world to enjoy, a salvation in which to rejoice. God gives. Grace is everywhere. Grace is everywhere. It really is when you look for it. Maybe you saw this uh, picture um, from the Maui wildfires in Lahaina. These wildfires that just tore through that city, a wall of fire traveling a mile a minute, destroyed everything. But yet, everything around being destroyed, there's this one house that was completely untouched. They're calling it the miracle house. If you owned that house, don't you think you would just be floored by the grace and mercy and kindness of God to you? That he saved you, that, that he plucked you out of the fire? Aren't you floored by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? That he saved you, that he plucked you out of the fire? Out of everyone in the world, he chose you. He loves you. He died for you. That's where the power comes from. That's when renewal happens. The good news of the gospel is that hypocrites can receive grace and love from God. We don't have to try and hide the reality of our hypocrisy under a layer of good works. Instead, we can be honest and know that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We have been declared righteous on account of him, and we are new creations who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. His perfect love casts out our fear and is the motivation to bring all of who we are, our thinking, our feeling, and our behavior in step with the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, just one fresh glimpse of your glory of your grace and your love, just one minute can sustain us for a lifetime.
So this morning, Lord, that's what we have desired, to be reminded yet again of your love and your grace for us, for me. So thank you. Thank you that you love hypocrites, that you have grace for people who compromise their convictions every day. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, grow us, make us more and more authentic to who we really are, cast out the fear that so drives us, and would you lead us, Lord, um, lead us again back to you. Um, We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.